Welcome to the EP Edit. This is a podcast dedicated to topics of interest in the field of cardiac electrophysiology. I'm Dr. Brad Knight, clinical editor of EP Lab Digest. In this episode, we are highlighting a discussion on simulation training in electrophysiology with both Drs. Stephen Sessler from Seattle Children's Hospital and Dr. Ashken Adai from Cedars Sinai. Well, I'm excited to be here. My name is Steve Sessler. I'm a electrophysiologist at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital, and I'm excited to talk today about simulation training in EP. Hi, I'm Dr. Ashkan Adai. I go by Ash, one of the faculty members in cardiac electrophysiology at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. I'm the course director of the Cardiac Electrophysiology Advanced Simulation Program, and excited to talk about our simulation program and what we're planning to do in the future and some of the gaps in our knowledge for this purpose. Great. Well, I'm glad you're here, Ash. You know, I called you uh, probably last fall, just reaching out and trying to understand sort of where was the simulation field in, in EP? Like, um, where, where had we gotten to? And I, I right. called around sort of the U.S. and talked to program directors, and, and your name came up quite early in that conversation as somebody that I should talk to. And, and so this is going to be exciting. For me, this really started about five or six years ago, and I was heading up the adult congenital program at the University of Washington. And and as you know, like all those patients are kind of unique. Everyone is a little different and they're challenging. And so I was looking for, as a a trained and and reasonably seasoned electrophysiologist, ways to do simulation and to to try to learn more about how to approach those patients without actually being in them, uh, doing the procedure at the time. And so that's sort of how my interest got started in this and it's been sort of a long and interesting journey. How did you get started in in simulation training? Yeah, believe it or not, I mean, when I was a trainee, I kind of stumbled onto some of the resources we have at Cedars-Sinai. And it was really out of my own interest in practicing these procedures, you know, off hours and getting repetition and understanding what I'm looking at and really advancing my own techniques and throughout the fellowship. We, we basically had a understanding that there was a simulation center in our, in our hospital, but I didn't understand to what extent that meant as far as hardware and software and what we could use. So it really started from there. And then once I understood how, what resources we had and what I could do with the system, it transitioned into, hey, I can use this to teach and learn floor and complement what we do in the lab. So that, that not only I get the benefit from that, but also the, the fellowship program at our hospital. And so one of the things that I found, and I spoke to probably more than 20 program directors around the country, is that there was very little simulation training going on. And what did go on was mostly industry bringing in specific simulators to kind of show people their products more than anything else. Right. And and so CEDARS really represents a, a unique you know, a, a unique approach to this where they've actually integrated stuff into their training program. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges in, in doing this and why CEDARS is able to make this happen in so many programs, my own included, have struggled to bring simulation training in? Yeah, I think you have to start with awareness, just like myself. I didn't even know that existed at our hospital until I kind of stepped in and explored so if you don't have the awareness or you, you haven't explored the resources or what you have in front of you, it's hard to imagine that you could use it and have it incorporated into a, some kind of program. So it's nice that we're doing this because I think this helps with awareness. You and I and everybody else that are part of the team 
be able to kind of explore with what we have and, and raise awareness for this very useful educational resource. The other thing is I think the resources are very limited in that sense. You know, it costs money to buy, for example, a machine that has high fidelity, that requires service and upkeep, requires software, and so that takes cost. So when I explored some of the other programs and looking at what they have, they don't have what we have, for example, that has been bought by the Cedar sinai Foundation and, and, and the money that's been put into the simulation center with this machine that I can use and use modules and software. So I think that's the, the second limitation is just having the resources. Yeah, no, I totally see that. And, and what, what I found was as we went sort of down, I don't want to say down in a pejorative sense, but when we go down the, the ladder a little bit and we get into medical school trainees in which there are a number of them, we see that simulation you know, has really made inroads into that. But as we get farther out on a branch, you may have one or two trainees in a given center. It's hard to justify tens of thousands of dollars uh, for some of these simulators when you're talking about such a few number of, of simulation trainees. And that's certainly been one of the challenges that I've seen reflected back as I've talked to different program directors. I think the other one that I'd like you to comment on is what do we know about simulation training in terms of you know, how, how effective is it? And where's the, you know, where's the data that shows that we're improving outcomes and that we're improving on sort of the apprenticeship model? And, and how do we sort of start filling some of those gaps? Yeah, I think that's a, a very important point, especially moving forward is you wanna be able to objectify how this program works and how simulation can impact patient care, um, whether it's efficacy or safety outcomes. It's hard, I'll be honest, I've been thinking, and we've talked about this topic within simulation a lot. How do you objectify a, an outcome with simulation? If you look at the data, for example, a lot of it comes from small series of students that have done certain things in, in the EP lab or in the intervention lab, for example, transeptal puncture. And they do a transeptal puncture, somebody looks at them, grades them, and they say, okay, this person did well after a certain amount of simulation, and then they take that to the lab and they're graded based on their abilities to do certain techniques. That's hard to really standardize, to be honest with you. And I think you and I are, that's, that's our biggest gap in, in knowledge of how simulation is going to be used in a sense to say, we're going to improve care and this is how we prove it. I can tell you, obviously everybody has their subjective assessment. This fellow did much better, I think, when they went through simulation for the first month than the other fellows in the past. Now, that's not going to really hold any water. And we need to really objectify that and see how, how we can improve that outcome. Yeah. No, it's kind of like we can, we can definitely, and I felt this as well, we can definitely feel the difference, but demonstrating it scientifically is, is challenging for all the reasons yeah. you said. And, you know, we can look to our surgery partners who I think have done more in this realm with, a, they have a lot of standardized observational scoring methods and, and things where they right. validated those things. And, and I think, you know, the OSATs and, and other, other things that come to mind and, I think that we have to take the time to to validate some scoring systems and and put them into place. And I and I think that we need like to the cost sensitivity of of the programs that are trying to do you know trying to do this. So I mean that's that's a challenge. That that's what we've been facing. On on that topic, do you think there should be some kind of a committee, right? I think in a sense to say these are people that have explored simulation. These are people that have used simulation. Should we develop a curriculum? 
right, that can be used and referenced to be able to help other EP communities or DP programs. I think that's something that we brought up before. Yeah, you know, I think this is a great example of where sharing resources could have a dramatically positive effect on, on what we can do. And we all don't have to go and reinvent the wheel right. um, in our own programs. And, uh, and in fact, there's, there, there would be strength in putting things together as a group where it would give it buy-in. And, you know, there's a relatively small number of training programs and certainly some are more interested in simulation training than others. And so I right. feel like we could get a core group together to at least get something, you know, uh, moving in the right direction. The other thing is, is that the, you mentioned, how do we expand simulation and, and, and virtual reality? Kind of, it, it does take away some of the hardware resources that are the limitations. For example, my system is different than what you envision to be a system for, for training. If you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? How, how, if cost is a barrier, and resources are a barrier, how do you use virtual reality to eliminate those barriers, for example, that, that I have, for example, the, the, the hardware barriers, for example, the, the software barriers? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, and I think one of the problems is that either if you've got somebody bringing the hardware in like a big company or flying people someplace for a couple of days, I don't think that gets at the heart of what we're trying to do. What we want is something where people like in your program have access to it on an ongoing basis and they can continue to train uh, on and over and over again. So virtual reality does solve that problem in a couple of ways. You also know that my bias on this is that I think the virtual thing, uh, virtual means of, of simulating stuff that's tactile and, and moving things through what will be a physical heart when you're doing this in a clinical procedure is challenging. And, and I, I'm not crazy about the idea of pure virtual simulation because I think it, it loses something when we have to sort of mimic the physics rather than really feeling the physics. And so I think it's a challenge that we are working on and we have some ideas about it that, that have not yet been validated, but I, I think it's a challenge on the one hand, having the resources to put a physical system in everybody's program seems unlikely. Flying people somewhere seems like not a good long-term solution. And so how do we do this uh, where we can keep everybody where they are and still have them interact in a way that's meaningful and feels like a, a real procedure? And, you know, there is a lot of work going on in haptics in, in the robotic space. And so I, I think there are avenues that we could explore, again, if we had a group of interested people uh, to sort of think through it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that's trying to balance what you have as full virtual without the haptics or the, the tactile feedback that you need versus the resources that come with hardware and buying. That's, that's really hard. The other thing that's interesting about the virtual world, the other one of the advantages of it, is we can display things in ways that you can't in, currently in the way we do clinical procedures, but I think can add to trainees sort of three-dimensional perception. And so while I do lament the lack of the tactile feel, I really love the fact that we can immerse ourselves in, in the structures. And, and as you know, we, we've done these sessions where they're just pure anatomy based and we literally crawl inside these hearts and can, can point and, and really give people a tour and, and introduce this to fellows in a way that I think is quite unique compared to how we all learned you know, uh, anatomy in, in our days of training. Yeah, it's, it's very surreal, the, the, the example that you gave me. Being in an environment, being able to go inside a, a normal heart or a congenitally defect heart and being able to understand where structures are, 
and the color coding and everything that you can do with software is just amazing. You can't get that in real anatomy. Yeah, and, and then I think you can also then translate these images that give somebody a full 3D perspective of what's happening. And then we can also sort of render them back in a 2D format to create a more, you know, put it back on a screen. So this is, this is what it is really happening. This is what it really looks like inside there. And now we're going to show you what the view is that you would actually be seeing and, and help people make that transition. You know, I can remember doing this when I started, there was no cardo, and we did just fluoroscopy, and, and you got used to looking at grayscale 2D stuff, and you learned that, you know, how do you make that into sort of a 3D object in your head? And I think we can shorten that learning curve by immersing people in, uh, in a virtual environment, but also, you know, showing them the 2D version as well. So, you know, I think it's time for a relook as to what's possible in EP simulation, and, and I don't think anybody would disagree that, that if we can do it and have a way of, of assessing it, you know, it, it would really add value to, to the training programs that are, that are out there. No, I absolutely agree. I, I think there's so much to be learned from repetition, the amount of hours you put in, the, the teaching process. I mean, I think there was a book written a long time ago about the 10,000 hour rule where you know, students need to practice. If you want to be skilled at something, you need to practice, you need to practice. And that has a lot of limitations in the real life lab, but it also has to do with who teaches that aspect as well. So it's not just the hours, but the teacher. So it's all good for the student, but it's also great for us that we were able to explore this and understand what, how should we teach simulation, right? You have things that you have, you know, mod models of uh, hearts. I have catheter manipulation. There's certain things that you know we have to look at and say, how are we going to teach this to these uh, to the trainees? Yeah, and so I guess if there was a uh, call from from this interaction, is we, we you know we've talked about getting together at HRS uh, with people who are interested in this and really just building a groundswell of people who think this is worth pursuing. Uh, you and I certainly do, and I think it would be exciting to to just kind of you know take a step back and see let's let's rethink this, let's figure out where the barriers are. And let's try to move something forward that we know we know will help with training and safety and all the things we know simulation training can do. We just have to take the time and put the effort in to, to make it work for EP. Right. Absolutely. We had an amazing discussion. Thanks, uh, Steve, and thanks to everyone putting the podcast together. I, I think this was a great discussion about where simulation is and what we need to do. It's, a, it's an amazing resource for our fellows, I can tell you that. And I want to explore the options of moving forward and, and making this uh, a kind of a nationwide or a worldwide type of phenomenon where everybody can experience what we experience. It's fantastic. Yeah, I greatly enjoyed the discussion and look forward to working with you more on this as we go forward. We'd like to thank our participants for joining us today. For more information about EP Lab Digest, please visit eplabdigest.com. Thanks for listening. 